Dio, che rido anch'io, oh Dio, oh Dio, che rido anch'io, e pensa ciò che le ascondo. You just heard the end of the aria Echo il Mondo from Arrigo Boito's Mephistophile as sung by bass baritone Mark Stephen Das, whose new album, Welcome to My World, is our July 2023 release on CD, July 14 to be specific. And those of you who've listened before know that whenever we have a new album on CD, we have a new classical Chicago podcast. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records, and proud to be the producer of this excellent recording. And my guest is the star of the show, bass baritone Mark Stephen Doss. Hi, Mark. Hi. Mark Stephen Doss has performed over 100 roles with more than 60 major opera companies, including oh, Teatro alla Scala, the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden, Vienna State Opera, San Francisco Opera, Lyric Opera of Chicago, to just to name a few. And of course, Mark Stephen is a alum of what used to be called the Lyric Center for American Artists, now the Ryan Opera Center. Some of his signature roles include The Dutchman in Wagner's Flying Dutchman, Amonasro in Aida, Scarpia in Tosca, The Four Villains in Tales of Hoffman, of course, Mephistopheli, as we just heard, and not only in the Boito, but also in Faust of Gounod, and Escamillo in Carmen. He's a Grammy Award winner for his role in the Deutsche Grammophon recording of Handel's Semele. He won first prize in the Verdi competition in Busseto, Italy, and also the National Institute for Music Theater's George London Opera Prize, which was presented to him by none other than Leotine Price. Mark Stephen has sung over 35 different oratorios on five different continents and in 10 different languages. Quite an all-encompassing career there. Mark Stephen is also a grand prize winner of Chicago's Bel Canto Foundation's competition. And in fact, this recording is something of a celebration of the nearly 40 years of the Bel Canto Foundation. In fact, I will read the credit on the back. The album is made possible in part by the generous support of the Bel Canto Foundation and its patrons, and is also supported by the Ruth Bader Ginsburg Fund for vocal recordings at Sadie Records. That's something we created last year to help fund vocal projects just like this one. With that introduction, I guess I would want to ask you, uh, Mark Stephen, to talk about your history and uh, particularly what you consider some of your career highlights. Yeah, I started out with the career highlights connected to the Lyric Opera Center. Ryan Center as it is now, but the Lyric Opera Center for American Artists when I joined it. And Matthew Epstein was actually instrumental. Uh, he was the head of Cami Opera, Cami uh, Columbia Artist Management for a long time. He was at Santa Fe when I was there consulting and consultant for uh, Lyric Opera Chicago. He offered to send me to the finals of the Lyric uh, Center. I'd been uh, to Vienna auditioning for the ensemble there in Austria with the Vienna State Opera. And I hadn't gotten any word back from them as far as joining that ensemble. So he suggested I might uh, go ahead and be in the finals for the uh, Lyric Opera Center, and I did. And it uh, accepted me and placed me in the opera company as an ensemble member. That led me to the Monasteros, 
It was Richard Baldry was one of the coaches at Lyric Opera Chicago, who was also connected with the Monasteros and the Belcanto Foundation. And he suggested I might want to try out some different repertoire and do some singing on the side, make a little bit of money by singing at the Monastero's restaurant, uh, Ristorante, which is on uh, Devon and Pulaski in Chicago. So I did that. And first meeting Martha Monastero, that led me to finding out how incredibly organized she was and putting the, the whole program together that I was going to do uh, each night that I was there at the restaurant, singing an aria and then singing a, usually a, an Italian song or just a show tune. And so that started out things with the Chicago Lyric which then led me to the Metropolitan Opera. Uh, I was a cover for Paul Plischke doing uh, Harafa and uh, Samson, that's Handel of Samson. That was with uh, John Vickers singing the title role, the role of Manoa. Then it was a co-production between the Met, Covent Garden, and Lyric Opera Chicago. Uh, Jonathan Friend came to Lyric Opera and heard me on the stage and said, well, great, we'd love him to cover the role of Manoa at the Met. Well, that was my big jump to the Metropolitan Opera, my first actual contract uh, that I did from Lyric Opera. I did Lyric there quite a few opportunities, and certainly singing with great uh, opera singers, Nikolai Gyarov, Placido Domingo was there as well, and others that I got to know, Piero Capuccilli, the great baritone. It was an incredible opportunity to launch a career in uh, Chicago. Here I am uh, singing at La Scala from uh, those uh, productions uh, as it went on. Bergonzi, uh, Carlo Bergonzi was uh, who I studied with in Museto. That was part of the bel canto competition that I won, the uh, grand prize. That connected me to Beatrice Ferraro because I went to Bergonzi at a point when I was looking for an agent. He suggested that uh, she would be someone that could help me. So I went and sang with her. I've done many, many things with her as far as my greatest triumphs, I guess, uh, successes at uh, La Scala and other Italian houses. So that's uh, the career highlights. I'm glad you mentioned the Monasteros because Bel Canto was really their foundation. As you mentioned, the competition itself was at their restaurant. I think it's fair to say there was a real family feel to the whole event. And you've credited the success in their competition and specifically the Monasteros with helping your career be what it has been. For sure. Meeting with Martha and then uh, Joe Monastero Sr., then Salvi Monastero, Gina Monastero, Elizabeth Monastero, all connected to the foundation, brought about amazing connections that I had with them. And again, the, the Verdi competition that uh, brought me to the ex equal. there was a baritone that won as well, first prize. So I was given half of the Verdi scores and an audition uh, promised at La Scala at that time. But again, with uh, Beatrice Ferrao to Carlo Bergonzi, who I studied with in connection with the Bel Canto competition, was the one that pushed that uh, connection through. So there are a lot of many branches that it goes out to from uh, the Monasteros and the Bel Canto uh, Foundation. And I should explain that how this album came about was really through the Monasteros. When they finally decided to end the competition after nearly 40 years, they wanted something to be remembered by, and they approached uh, me and Sadie Records and said, we'd love to do an album with our most successful laureate as a way that people could remember and immortalize the work of the Belcanto Foundation. So that's how we got here. And in fact, it's not just you, of course, because your collaborator on this album pianist Ken Smith also had a major role in the Bel Canto Evenings. Can you say a few words about him and working with him? Yeah, Ken was amazing to work with. We had done something together probably in Buceto because I think he was actually on the staff there when I was uh, in the seminar. 
or we may have missed. I'm trying to think for sure because I only spent the two weeks there from the time I had the, the Met contract and I was supposed to go to Buceto to study with Bergonzi. I did my last two weeks and then it gave me the rest of the funds to go back and win the, the Verity competition with Ken Evenings, the Bel Canto competition, not just as an accompanist, but as a collaborator when I would come back and whether do some judging uh, for the competition or just do some performing this extra perk for those who had attendance for the competition. That was a, a great thing to be a part of. And for this recording, certainly he was always available for any time that I asked for us to rehearse together. It's a great privilege to be able to perform with him. And I'll just add that Ken actually has enjoyed a 50-year performing career, and he was the regular pianist of those bel canto competition evenings. He also taught at Northwestern University's voice and opera department for over 20 years. How would you say it was different working with him on a recording project as opposed to just performance? The process of just going over things again and again is a, a little bit of a, taking the edge off the nerves sometimes, you know, once you get used to the process. Because in a performance, you know, you think, oh, you have one shot, maybe, and you don't want to stop and start and say, listen, audience, and we need to start this one again. So in the sense of having a recording, it's always great to run through something and tweak it as uh, you're very good and uh, your ears is very good and they were able to pick up certain things that could be better or could be uh, maybe another rendition. I know we did uh, several takes on some and maybe somebody didn't need as many takes, maybe just one or two. Or So it was quite a, a good challenge. And again, the, the nerves calm down a bit as you get used to the process. Excellent. This album, in addition to as I said, immortalizing the success of the Belcanto Foundation and its competition is also something of a retrospective for you, even though your career is still going strong. It's such a wide-ranging program, and you've divided it into five categories. First, the devil songs and arias, then more grand opera repertoire, then the Italian songs, then there's some show tunes, and then finally a set of inspirational songs, and we'll talk about each of these groups in turn. So the first set opens with three different settings in three different languages of the Song of the Flea from Goethe's Faust. Uh, why did you choose these? Well, I'd seen a, a long time ago in one of my anthologies, the Beethoven version, and uh, I just kept uh, trying to find that same anthology, and I don't know if I ever found it in time that I actually wanted to perform it. Uh, because I had already done the Mussorgsky one in Russian. And so it gives you the gist of the whole story about the flea and this king that has the flea. And uh, Mephistopheles telling the story in uh, Auerbach's cellar, basically, and entertaining the locals, uh, entertaining or trying to distract them. It's always interesting, the point of view of the devil, who is trying to achieve something sometimes not so noble. I came by something very profound in uh, one of the commentaries when I did research for the Beethoven because it did bring in some extra connections as far as a social connection. It's not just a sort of tale that Mephistopheles is telling to these people, but also uh, the sense of the devil having this feeling that human beings are so stupid that they would be uh, brainwashed by this idea that there's a flea that you can dress up and put into court and make a minister. That was all quite profound. So adding that to the Berlioz, which I had just run across uh, from the damnation of Faust, something I've been trying to add to the Devil's Oito and the Guno of Faust. Having found that one, uh, I did the serenade first. It's always nice to see when you have different things that you can connect together and then to see the similarities and the differences. 
So those three are, are quite nicely contrasting. The last one that I found is the Beethoven, which has a very energetic charge to it, as if, uh, if the devil were telling the story, he's almost giving a little shock therapy, a little tasering to his audience as it starts up. It's a jolt to the system. As I did the Faust for the first time, this is the Calf of Gold. It's the same place that one would have had the Song of the Flea. I remember at Indiana University, I actually used my picture in the brochure as the devil jumping up on this big stand, having the chorus just pulling away with their hands up and in total shock. This was a Ross Allen's staging. And so that's always reminded me of that and how that would affect them, especially if he's talking about a flea. It's not quite the same as the Calf of Gold, as we'll get to a bit later. The Mussorgsky I used uh, with other Russian songs, I, I found it uh, connected in quite well with Glinka, which was the Napoleon's uh, Midnight Review. This is a wonderful uh, setting. And then I used uh, Tchaikovsky's None But the Lonely Heart, and I found that those three mixed together quite well, a little bit of farce with the, uh, the Song of the Flea, and then the wonderful long line of None But the Lonely Heart. And then finally, the Glinka is just a petitious three segments, four strophes of talking about Napoleon reviewing these troops. It was a, a nice connection. And then, as I said, I found the Berlioz, which is just amazing. Ken and I had uh, rehearsed it. I had an, a wonderful anthology that's uh, very precise and gives a wonderful background. But he had looked at the score, and he found that the chorus extends past where the anthology just stopped. So we added that uh, ending. And as I, I thought about it being quite uh, poignant, because Mephistopheles comes back in at the end and says, I killed these fleas. They started biting us. And the chorus sings underneath. But I thought, well, what would happen if I just continued uh, while the chorus is singing without a chorus? We wouldn't have one for the recording. I just kept singing while the accompaniment is being played out and then uh, came back in for my final line. Uh, that made it very poignant, very powerful, I thought. Let's hear that. And folks, please pay attention to the really impressive ending of this song. So here is Une Pousse Gentille, a gentle flea from Hector Berlioz's La Damnation de Faust, as sung by Mark Stephen Doss with Ken Smith at the piano. Puisse gentille chez un prince logé, comme sa propre fille, le brave homme l'aimait. Et l'histoire l'assure, passant ailleurs un jour, lui fit prendre mesure pour un habit de cour. Dès qu'il se fit paré, d'or de velours de soie et de croix décorées, puis venaient de Provence ses frères et ses sœurs qui par ordre du prince devinrent grand seigneur. C'est que les gens de cour Sans en oser dire Se grattaient tout le jour Cruel et politique Au plein leur destin Et de qui ne nous pique Écrasant la
You just heard the Song of the Flea in Pousse Gentille from La Domination de Faust of Hector Berlioz as sung by Mark Stephen Doss, bass baritone, and my guest on this Classical Chicago podcast with Ken Smith Piano. Mark Stevens' album, Welcome to My World, opens with three settings of the Song of the Flea, as we noted, the first being this Berlioz. This sets up already a theme for me, uh, Mark Stephen, that you'll forgive me for saying so, you are a real showman. And I think that ending, how do you manage to hold out that note that long? I don't know if it was as quite as long. It does give me a connection to the other song uh, that I've done many, many times, which is the Carmen. You sing the last, the Toreador mm-hmm. song. It's a nice note because it sits in the tessitura pretty well. It's the, the F on the top, so it just goes well. You memorize what the breath support is necessary in order to sustain that long note. It's very impressive. Interestingly, the other two versions of Song of the Flea actually do have the courtiers clapping back, literally in the way you do the Beethoven, where you end with that clap suggesting somebody taking care of one of those fleas. <laughs> and then the laugh at the end of the Mussorgsky made me actually think of Michael Jackson's thriller. How do you come up with these clever ideas for personalizing these pieces? Well, I listened to some very good recordings. Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau has a, a wonderful one of the Beethoven. And I just thought it ended a little, I won't say flatly, because he sings everything extremely well. I just thought, well, could it be something a little bit more? What I get used to doing at Indiana University when we had everything was double cast, you know, at IU. I did uh, six roles there. And so we were always trying to do the person that was doing the other cast, whether it was the first cast or second cast. Well, maybe they did something that was really good. I thought, well, I'll try something that's a little different and maybe it will make a stronger impact or just a different impact. So the sense I have for trying to feel through dramatic interpretations. Well, and of course, I'll add to that. So we now get into the opera selections, but there's also a connection because the first two are also devil roles. And we heard at the beginning of the podcast, the end of the Boito Eco Il Mondo, where you pop that balloon suggesting that the devil is exploding the world. That's quite an effect, too, I I must say. I do have to ask, with all these devil roles, the songs and then the Boito Mephistophele and the Faust Mephistophele and and others, can you talk a little bit about the prevalence of these kind of roles over the span of your career and how much fun it is to play the devil and what are some of your favorite roles in that regard? Yeah, I started with the Faust devil at Indiana University. Uh, It was maybe my third role there. It was quite a poignant experience. I was uh, in the brochure because it just made such a huge impression. I jumped up on that crazy stump there and and Ross Allen's staging just uh, totally paralyzing and and mesmerizing uh, the crowd. From there, I went to uh, New York City Opera right after my covering at the Metropolitan Opera. And then that got me connected with Beverly Sills. And they had an incredible production of uh, the Boito Mephistopheles that was very iconic, directed by Tito Capobianco. Actually, it was his production. So they did it for many years over and over again. Norman Tregel was one of the first to, to actually do that. Very athletic, acrobatic. He spins this way and that way when he's doing the, the whistling aria that I've done before. Again, I was covering that. Sam Raimi also did that after Norman Tregel. And John Cheek was singing it when I was covering him. So I was all set to go in for that production. I think Beverly Sills had put me into that. 
position, but then they took it out of the standard <laughs> repertoire. They didn't, we're doing it each year again. That was really inspiring. I mean, if you've ever seen that production, it starts out in the complete darkness with the lit baton, you know, da 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 It's quite a, an amazing. And then you see the hand of God, Michelangelo, it goes on and on from there. The devils connected in that way, and then uh, the devil roles, say the four villains in the Tales of Hoffman, always very much devil-ish characters that work out the demise of Hoffman in that wonderful opera, which I've done a couple of times. And Nick Shadow, I've uh, worked on quite a bit in The Rick's Progress, also has that devil connection. And the Berlioz being the, the last one I've tried to add is quite interesting because the ends of the Boito and the Guno Faust quite different. Uh, Gounod is called Marguerite in uh, Germany because it's more about her salvation than it is about Faust and his uh, trying to find redemption after uh, she dies. It ends right there, but then the Voito Mephistopheles goes on to the more the Goethe uh, story, and whereas uh, you have a part one, part two, a lot of it is there, and I did it in Frankfurt, uh, which is the home of Goethe. I did both of them almost uh, successively back-to-back, Gounod and the Voito. Uh, one year or two years apart, I think. It gives you a good impression to be in the same city that the man who had the stories created. Uh, I looked at the Berlioz, which is quite different in some ways because you're talking about the redemption of Faust at the end of the Boito Mephistopheles, praise to God and the devil uh, loses the soul because God had said from the beginning, you probably won't get this guy. He's my faithful servant. But in the Berlioz rendition, the devil tricks him. He says, okay, we're going to save Marguerite. We're going to go and save her. But he actually takes him straight to hell. <laughs> so I always got a, a kick out of that little twist that Berlioz throws in. Uh, being in the Catholic seminary, I heard stories from uh, other seminarians and other ordained priests uh, that I had aspired to at the beginning. So that's kind of my foray into the, the devil world, I think. And that's why I get something out of it. Impressive. Well, that helps. The program continues after the Boito and the Gounod with five more opera roles, and it's quite a range from Bizet's Carmen, Handel's Ronaldo, Mozart's Le Nozze di Figaro, Rossini's La Cenerentola, and Giordano's Andrea Chenier. Can you just talk a little bit about the approaches to singing such different operatic styles in each case? Yeah, the Handel roles have always been very dear to me. I sang Messiah on the south side of Chicago when I was there in the Opera Center still. The Kennedy King College, there was a good orchestra. They picked up some orchestra people. The Dr. Randall Johnson, I believe, was the conductor. There's even a broadcast that we did from there, and I sent that. And we have from the south side of Chicago, Kennedy King, uh, Messiah, and you talked about the arias that I did, Why the Nations. I remember Why the Nations was the one I did. It was just at a breakneck speed. I couldn't believe it. And all the coloratura was in place. It was chiseled. I thought, my gosh, I don't know if I could ever perform it quite at that speed and that precise. But led me to the other Handel roles, especially Cleveland Opera was the first time I actually performed an operatic Handel role. That was Julia Cesare. I was uh, doing this production in Cleveland because it was from New York City Opera. It was one that Norman Triggle and Beverly Sills had done, and they were about to scrap the set. And uh, so David Bamberger was the uh, general manager at Cleveland Opera, and he bought this, the set before they, <laughs> they destroyed it. It had all that life still in it. It had uh, the Sills and Trigal's brand on it. 
And so I sang for him as an audition, uh, Cleveland Opera, my hometown, Why Do the Nations? This is the first time I ever sang it uh, from memory. That got me onto the operatic uh, part of Handel. And remember being at my curtain call, hearing someone from the audience holler out, Hail Caesar! So I thought, okay, I have arrived for the most part. That took me on to Chicago, where I did Ormonte and Partenope. And we had David Daniels, Vajan Meta, and some other Rossini specialists. Harry Beckett conducted that. Then I was given the opportunity, after I made my debut at La Scala with uh, Escamillo, I was asked almost immediately before I left, could you do Argante in Ronaldo? And I had been singing the aria. I think I had just started singing it, maybe at the Cultural Center in 2003 with Donna Brunsma playing the piano. And so I thought, yes, I could sing that for you. I did. And they cast me as Argante in uh, Ronaldo to sing this wonderful aria, Sibilar. It's a pizzi uh, production where they have these figurants pushing you around on these big horses quite impressive uh, that I did it there. And um, yeah, the, the breath support uh, was one thing I had to do, but also you, you have to understand I was on the back of this horse without a saddle too, uh, being rolled around the stage as I was singing that aria. It, it wasn't always so simple. Later on, as I've sung heavier roles, Verdi and whatnot, and Wagner, to still have the ability to do the coloratura, I'm very pleased to be able to do that. Well, you also sing Rossini on this. So how does Rossini coloratura differ from Handel coloratura? The Rossini is somewhat of an offshoot of the Handel, sometimes longer lines, but still the different scale of progressions in the coloratura. Uh, having started out with the solfeggio in undergraduate when I was studying, I realized it was an asset when I took it on to sing roles such as Adidoro, Cenerentola. Uh, Again, I was at La Scala when I was asked, uh, could you sing this aria? That's uh, quite difficult. And I did, but I had already uh, sung it uh, with Alberto Zeta in Antwerp, Ghent, this Flemish opera, a few years before. Uh, I studied also with Philip Gossett, who was a musicologist on the south side of Chicago at the University of Chicago. I won the George London Award and it, that gave me the money to use, and I used it to work with uh, Professor Gossett and uh, to try to figure out the style of uh, Rossini. So we did quite a few excerpts of Rossini, one of which was that Alidoro aria. So he gave me variation among variations that he and Alberto Zeda had uh, worked together in a critical edition of La Cenerentola. Those were some of the embellishments that I used at La Scala and at the Lyric Opera Chicago. I also did Alidoro there. So those are the three places I've done the, the Alidoro aria. And uh, it was a style that I got down while I was working with him, and uh, he pushed me in order to make things even better. So that was a, a great opportunity to learn um, from him. I had done uh, Don Basilio before that, and I'd also done the Mustafa in L'Italiana Nigeria. I did that in Torino. I also did in the Santa Fe. So there was also a sense of the basic Rossini lines that I was able to accomplish and to blend into this other role of Alidoro. When you said it was quite difficult, I think that's an understatement. In terms of bass coloratura, isn't this like one of the hardest arias out there? It does hang up in a range, but it, it moves. The coloratura is so fast that it moves within a slower context of the first part of it. And then you either do the second just to get through A lot of times it's cut. I think I did do cuts at La Scala and the Chicago Lyric, you know, the conductor that preferred not to do it uncut. But I, I did it uncut the first time with Alberto Zeta. 
So that was what we did for this recording. And it was difficult to, when I first sang it for him, he said, maybe you're a Rolls Royce instead of a, a Ferrari, meaning he wasn't sure if the color tour was going to jump in place. But as I went on into performance, it all came through. So it's a matter of brain, as I said, because I use solfeggio, and uh, that tells me what the notes are. And once I know what the notes are, my capacity to panting and whatnot that I do, weighted hula hoop uh, is a little later, I think, keeps the, the diaphragm and the intercostal muscles moving in a nice way. In between these two on the program, and, and this was your very clever idea to separate out those two gigantic areas, we have one of the most popular arias in the repertoire, Nom Pian Dry. How do you approach uh, that one? So many years of listening and listening and listening. At St. Joseph's College, I remember Dr. John Egan would always say, you have such an interesting capacity. He wasn't sure of my musicianship. He certainly said uh, that I seem to have something that I derive from my ability to listen, to hear uh, certain things within uh, great singing. I would listen to a lot to Cesare Siepi, and his renditions are just monumental. And I met him at the Lyric Opera Chicago when I was covering Bartolo, Sesto Brustantini, and he was doing his debut as a Don Basilio in the Barber Seville. I got his autograph on my Don Giovanni score. It's one of the few people I've asked for an autograph. I take some things from that because I also performed that at the Lyric Opera Chicago in their Opera Center production. We had Figaro. That was the first time I sang Figaro. We did it in English. But we went around to all the schools in Chicago area. So it was quite an experience to do, I don't know, maybe upwards of 20 performances, I think we did, of the Figaro. Starting from that recording and then doing it in English makes it a little bit of your own because you're not doing it in Italian. I did finally do it in Cleveland, Cleveland Opera. I did Mozart, uh, Figaro. The review that I <laughs> interestingly got in the Cleveland Opera was that I sounded like a young Cesare Siepi. Uh, <laughs> I thought, okay, well, I guess I've done what I needed to do. But again, making it my own, because I think the review said I made it my own with some lightning quick sort of changes in mood, which I tried to incorporate with my sense of Stanislavski and whatnot, using other words, connecting into the Italian uh, as best I could. Well, speaking of making things your own in a completely different contrast, the, this set ends with uh, Giordano's Nemico della Patria, Enemy of the Country, from Andrea Chenier, which is a completely different thing. It's a baritone role, for one thing, and it is just so dramatic. How do you approach that differently from these other pieces, which you could argue are more about bel canto singing? I think it has a lot of bel canto in it, uh, but it is a held in baritone or dramatic baritone piece in the Fox system, as it were. I have the, just incredible memories because uh, one of the was it cassettes at the time, I don't know if it's been transferred over to CD, was the 10 great baritones singing 10 great arias. And one of them is uh, Ettore Bastianini singing uh, Nemico della Patria. And his rendition of that is just off the charts. It's the worldlies. I always try to see if I can, you know, you're not going to say always do better than these great singers, but I thought, well, if somewhere in there I can make a little bit of something different, who knows what the impression would be. But again, you stand on the shoulders of these amazing giants, which I did. Bastianini studied as a bass when he started out, and he made the transition to baritone. I was somewhat singing both sides, uh, bass and baritone, from the very beginning. So in that sense, uh, the Nemico della Patria, it's about the French Revolution. It's about this person who has strong ideals as a revolutionary and gets distracted by his 
connection, his desire to be the love interest of this lady who is already dedicated to Andrea Chenier, the tenor. But he finds a way to resolve it at the end. But within that path, he gives this incredible soliloquy about being a follower of the revolution, being a disciple of the revolution, uh, wanting to have so many things for humanity, lifting men up to be gods. And again, it's a, a beautiful piece. It has a strong, robust, held in dramatic baritone outburst, but also a bel canto line. So that's why I included that. Well, the set begins with probably the most famous bass baritone aria of all, the uh, Toreador from uh, Bizet's Carmen. And Escamillo, if I'm correct, uh, is the role you've sung the most in your career. How many different productions have you done? Um, roughly, I would say it's a 12, 13, 14 uh, productions probably. I, I made a lot of performances, 123 performances out of it with uh, Lyric Opera Chicago. I think I ran a about 17, and then there's a production I did in Brussels, La Monet, that was probably three seasons I did with them, almost about 30 to 35 performances of the same production. But then other places like Berlin, and uh, even at uh, La Scala, and San Francisco Opera, and Verona, the Arena di Verona, uh, those were different productions. Especially La Scala, with my debut, only had a few rehearsals to get in and do it. Flew me in, I sang a, an audition, and then I did a musical with a Plasson, I think, uh, the great French conductor. And I still didn't know if I was going to do my debut. I had to go to the office and say, am I singing tomorrow? And they said, yes, you are singing tomorrow. That was uh, my La Scala debut with that role. And, and I remember I had to stick a sword into a table. I remember I went so hard into it that it was a bit difficult to get it out. So much adrenaline was going well, in light of all that, and because it is such a tour de force performance, I think we'll hear as our musical selection for this set an excerpt from the famous uh, Troyador song. I would ask you, as with the Mozart, how do you make such a well-known role really your own? I think of it as an Olympic event. We have the little bit of a spoken dialogue that we put at the beginning, which is nice because it does take a little bit of the stress off of this aria that everybody knows that you have to just start out with it. At least you have uh, the little bit of uh, of spoken, uh, Messieurs les officiers, je vous remercie. Remind me, officers, I give it back. I thank you again for your toast. They say, come and have a drink with us. So that's uh, our way of actually uh, cutting into the difficulty of starting out with this iconic aria and making it a little different. Because it's always nice to hear something a little different than something you've heard before. Doing it Lyric Opera Chicago is one of the broadcasts over radio WFMT. My son and my mom were visiting in Evanston, where I was living at the time. And I said, okay, guys, I have to go downtown and sing an opening night of Carmen. I left them. And, uh, they heard over the radio, and I had other people <laughs> saying some really good things about it. The same year, I sang it in Liège, in a French-speaking area in Belgium. I was uh, playing tennis with a young man who had been singing with in uh, Glyndebourne. He was a in Sarastro. He said, why don't you come to Liège and sing an Escamillo as I'm doing it for the first time, and I know you've done it, so it would take a little bit of pressure off of him having me there. So we played a couple sets of tennis for my first uh, performance, and it went so amazingly well that I thought, oh, this is what you need. You need that breathing, at, uh, those little wind sprints that you do in your tennis, running from side to side. And that gave me an idea that sustaining the, the breath support and in order to get those top notes and then the bottom uh, people will say that. They said that in Liège. We can't always find somebody who has both sides in order to do this role. You have to have the top and the bottom as well. And being a bass baritone helps in that ability. 
Great. Well, let's hear that then. We'll start at the second verse where things in the bullring are getting really exciting. Here is an excerpt from the famous Toreador song of Bizet's Carmen, as sung by bass baritone Mark Stephen Doss with Ken Smith at the piano. just heard about the second half of the Toreador song, Bullfighter Escamillo's great aria from Bizet's Carmen, as sung by bass baritone Mark Stephen Doss with Ken Smith at the piano from Mark Stephen's new album, Welcome to My World on Sadie Records. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, and I certainly expect you are, you can find this album on streaming sites when it's released on July 14 of this year. You can also order it as a physical CD. In fact, you can pre-order it uh, right now. Whenever you're listening to this podcast, if it's before July 14, you can get it off the Sadie Records website, which is C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. But of course, you can find it on Amazon.com and Archive Music and all those wonderful places. And of course, the streams come from Spotify and Apple Music and Tidal and all the rest. So I hope you'll definitely want to find and check out the full album. Well, now we've heard a song and an operatic selection. This might be a good time to discuss your voice type. How is it to be able to sing, as we were just talking in the last set, roles that are traditional bass roles and roles that are traditional baritone roles? Yeah, I did a segment during the pandemic after my heart and soul that was to get people connected to the spirituality and connect me to my ministry, the part that I left behind, left the seminary. And so it did fulfill that during the pandemic, but I then switched into a segment called Foxually Correct, which had me singing six different fox of the bass and the baritone repertoire. So going from the high baritone down to serious low bass roles at the top were 
such things as Avant de Quitter Seigneur from Faust, as Valentin's Arian and the Barber Seville, the very iconic Largo Factotum. I did that. Well, those things seem to fit quite, quite well, but then I also sang roles of uh, Boris and Osiris from the Magic Flute that Sarastro sings. Those are roles that I've sung in the past. They are still locked into the brain, into the voice. I would do maybe three arias within a session. And then they'd start moving up to bass baritone, dramatic baritone, character baritone, character bass. We would keep them close by because it's not always easy to go from the top to the bottom. How the voice can work so simply. It needs a little bit of time. It's coloring sometimes. George London is a great admirer of his. He uses a lot of different colors and also Cesare Siepin, uh, Bastianini. Their voices are somewhat similar, but at the same time, a different. You have a, a dramatic baritone in Bastianini, you have a bass baritone in London, and you have more of a classic bass, uh, even some have called Basso Profondo with uh, Cesare Siepi. But hearing those uh, singers do what they do, Carlo Bergonzi even said at one time, he would listen to Caruso, he would listen to Gili, and he would envision what the positions were that they were using in order to make the sounds that they were making. And he was able to duplicate uh, some of that. I think I have that similar ability to hear how they're actually producing their sounds when they're going through them. It helps me make the transition from the bass and the baritone roles. Great. We're going to shift gears for the next three tracks. So we go from the world of opera to the world of Italian song, sometimes called Neapolitan songs. And for the Bel Canto Foundation competitions, contestants had to prepare both Italian opera and song repertoire. Isn't that correct? That's right. I had the opportunity when I was singing at Monastero as a ristorante there to be accompanied by the great accordionist Herman Troppi who was just an orchestra with that instrument. He'd walk in and he'd play in any key that you needed to play. His ability to use that instrument, I think he actually played for Chicago Symphony because he was really that good. Joe Monastero was also coming too with the accordion. The songs that came into the bel canto, I was probably taking O Sole Mio from, uh, again, Mario Lanza or Caruso even, uh, recordings that I was listening to. I think, oh, geez, I have to sing this aria. And so you have a feeling of the Neapolitan style when you hear the way they do their renditions. And I listened to some other singers as well. The uh, Soriento was something actually I played on the piano when I was an undergraduate for uh, Dr. Egan's uh, wife, uh, Anne-Marie Egan, taught me piano. They both actually taught me piano. I was recalling one of the renditions that I played for her was a, a piano version of Torna Soriento. And she was just so uh, excited at the end of it because, oh my gosh, you made this a flourish as I was playing it. It sounded like an Italian song because this is what I had heard. That's how I was playing it on the piano. It's, uh, it gave me, yeah, that sense of the style. Uh, the other, which is uh, Non ti scordare di me, was a fantastic piece that the Monasteros sang quite a bit at their gatherings and ending the evenings. It was very special to them, and I thought it would be a great thing to dedicate to this recording uh, that I was doing with their help and their uh, funding. As you mentioned, the accordionist at the Belcanto evenings, and these are the only three songs on the album which you don't collaborate with Ken Smith at the piano, but rather you sing them with accordion, specifically with accordionist Stanislav or Stas Venglevsky, who's a virtuoso of the Russian accordion, the Bayan. Uh, in fact, he studied in Moscow and was also a two-time first prize winner of the Republic of Moldova's national Bayan competition uh, before emigrating to the United States. How did you find Stas and how was he to work with? 
Well, I, I went through an extensive search going to the Accordion Society of Chicago, and there was also a school in Chicago that I thought I could come up with somebody. They, they were hard-pressed to find anybody that was actually still in the area. I think Stas was in uh, Milwaukee at the time he, he came into Chicago. I was given his name. He said he, he was available. He could do the recording. And so we're still at a little bit of difficulty because I was not you know, in Chicago at the time. It wasn't like a Zoom sort of session as we're having here and trying to re rehearse with him for the, for the first time. And uh, was, I think it's one of the first times I've ever done that. I've done it times, one or two other times with a conductor. So you go through some music and I'm at the piano. I try to, you know, pluck out some things. So this was actually a full-blown attempt to hear what he was like, how he played the, the instrument and how we would be able to make some good music. But again, I got the gist of how he was playing and I thought it was going to work. So when we came together on the day of the recording, as you recall, it was morning that uh, he could only come in on. And uh, I think we finally got some good things together. We had a number of takes and you, we, we got some good uh, connections. So I, I was uh, pleased to make beautiful music with those three Italian songs. Well, I was just going to ask you, what would you say are the essence of uh, these songs and how do you bring that out? Osole Mio is, again, something that uh, connected in from the, the Caruso and the Mario Lanza. The Caruso album is quite amazing. It's remastering. You probably heard it. Uh, and just when he hits the top, you hear this, oh my God, the voice of Caruso had to be such an incredible thing to hear in life. But uh, that remastering gives you a sense of what that song is about and how it, much power it conveys. You are my son, you, it's my treasure. It's something I, I sang to my wife on our wedding in Torino, Italian. And then Torno was I sang both of those arias as songs for the Bel Canto competition because I was playing on the piano. And uh, the thing about uh, come back to Sorrento is uh, very sentimental and it talks about like a home so coming that uh, someone is pleading for. And I think that's something that as a traveling opera singer, you have that connection with home and you think about it that way. That helps me bring out certain things in those two songs. Non ti scordare di me, don't forget me, don't scorn me. Don't, uh, something again about when you're away and you want people to remember you, that it connects into that. And the monasteros have always been that for me. I know that they've never forgotten me and that uh, there's a special place in my heart for them as it is for me. So it's a great connection. Well, that's very nice. So you've noted all three songs, so I don't need to repeat them. For listening, I remember during the editing process, you were really pleased with how Torna Suriento came out. So I thought that's the one we would listen to. So here is Ernesto de Curtis's Torna Suriento, sung by Mark Stephen Das with Stas Venglevsky at the accordion. Siente se ti sciure arance, 
the famous Italian song Torna a Sorriento as sung by bass baritone Mark Stephen Das from his new album Welcome to My World. In this case, he was collaborating with accordionist Stas Venglevsky. Now that we've heard works uh, recorded with both uh, instruments, with piano and with accordion, this might be a good time to ask about your experience of the recording sessions and really what your approach is to recording as opposed to your approach to live performance. Yeah, I was saying earlier that ability to go back and to uh, repeat a phrase that may have gone really well, you think, well, let's just get one more just in case. (laughs) That's quite a great experience. I was studying at Indiana University first with uh, Walter Castle, who was on the recording of the Ballad of Baby Doe with Beverly Sills. And so I actually heard him sing that in that opera at uh, Indiana University uh, live with um, Riri Grist singing the role of Baby Doe. He was always intent on telling you that you have your recorder, and with that, you can make adjustments to your vocal technique and anything that you need to work on by just uh, using the recordings. He'd have his recorder all set up for the lessons when you walked in, and he gave you the tape as you were leaving. It's a process that you came to depend upon, knowing that you would be able to do that on your own. I think he said once, as a tenor, Mario Del Monaco. He said to Mario Del Monaco, he says, you have a wonderful voice. Who is your teacher? And the Mario Del Monaco said, io, io, I'm my teacher. <laughs> you know, listening over and over again, putting on loop, seeing if you can improve on something very minute. I have a process of putting things into number systems and one phrase. I put emotions with it, and it's a good process. But again, as you were pointing out, uh, during the process, if you have a good technician and has a good ear, uh, you can always um, understand that there 
possibly better things that you can do or different things that you can do, slight nuances that you can bring to something. And that was an enjoyable getting from you during the, the sessions. Oh, I appreciate that. I should mention that the sessions were recorded in Jarvis Hall, which is the new chamber opera hall at DePaul University here in Chicago. In fact, it's the same hall where we recorded our world premiere recording of Joseph Boulogne, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges' 1780 opera, world premiere of L'Amant Anonyme, which we are very happy with. So I want to ask you how you enjoyed working in that hall and specifically with CD engineer Bill Malone to get the balances and also occasional sound effects that you wanted. Yeah, I really enjoyed the acoustic in Jarvis Hall. There was a nice bounce that I was getting off of the wood surfaces and singing into that amazing microphone uh, that was sitting in front of me. And you were telling me that Frank Sinatra may have used that same mic. Well, that model, yes. Yeah, that model. Okay. It's just an ideal size hall. And you get a good bounce. The sort of Wagnerian thing that I've gone through in the Lyric of Chicago, one of the, the prompter was telling me, he says, yeah, the Wagnerians, they're quite different. They, they go from side to side on the stage and they try to bounce the voice off of different surfaces in order to feel uh, what that acoustic is going to be like. And so that was something I could feel in that hall specifically. There's a sense of a good feedback that you get that's uh, warm and allows you to give your best, I think, as far as singing goes. Great. The rest of the program that we're going to hear about now is in English, but up till now we've heard arias and songs in French, German, Russian, and of course Italian. I notice you put a very high premium on diction, which I suppose all singers should do, but not all do do. How much work is it to do that, and is it harder for some languages than others? It can be, but not so much, because I've gotten used to a system of numbering phrases there's a baritone that asked me, said, well, how many phrases are in this opera? So I can tell you specifically in Rigoletto, there are basically 315 phrases. And then you have Amenazro, there's 100 phrases. I know it's a bit anal retentive sometimes. It allows me the ability to then cross-reference a phrase with anything else I want to do with it. I, I will diagram sentences. So you have the nouns, you have the verbs, you have the adjectives and the pronouns and and uh, Stanislavski has the method of bringing out the nouns. You know, he's always talking about the mountain and uh, those uh, stuff that you haven't seen before, nobody has ever experienced before. But because you put such emphasis on them, they will give an impression on the brain of those people who may not have gone through the same experience that you have. And you would bring them into your world. You see my score, you have a double underline of uh, nouns and you'll see maybe a single underline of pronouns. And then when I transcribe them into another program, like a word program, you'll see in italics, maybe bold italics, you'll see verbs. And then you'll see probably adjectives and adverbs in italics. And so those are the the spicy things that I throw in. I think of those as spice adjectives. The nouns are still quite profound, and I try to visualize them. I sit, meditate on them. I, I did a session in Toronto with a couple of different drama coaches when I was working on The Dutchman, uh, one of the, the great roles that I've sung, because I wanted to see what the process would be like from a, an actor's point of view. Get this one little concept that this character is about, such as a word, and meditate on it. Just keep it in your brain. And so that process and the other had an arc. So you start a, a role with a, going from here and you go to there and how do you get to the end of it? So that, that's helped me to think about the climaxes and not just in role, but also in an aria. So I use those in order to bring out the words, specific words. And you'll see that with all the English, Italian, French, German, Russian, with all the languages, you'll still see those underlines in my score. 
and uh, that helps me to communicate the language and somehow it enables me to sound like that I'm a, a native speaker sometimes because I'm giving emphasis to those things that are most important. I do pantomiming of uh, I really want to give a lot of gestures. I can write in gestures. Uh, you see my Boris aria that I've done. Uh, you'll see four things there. You see the English translation with the Russian uh, transcription, transliteration. Uh, you'll also see my gesture. I have gestures for each of those phrases that I've put in, as well as some solfeggio that I put in. And, and in bold, you'll see the nouns in bold that will help me to convey what the different languages are. Is, is one more difficult than the other? Well, I'm singing Czech right now in Rome, Italy. This can be a bit difficult. For a long time with my George London Award, I was going to the Rockefeller Center, taking the four languages, Italian, French, German, and Russian. Now, is singing in your native language different, or do the same approaches and techniques you just mentioned apply? The same would apply. I would remember doing roles at Indiana University, which were all in English at the time. You know, at Indiana, they now do them in the original language, as they've uh, done in other places, Cincinnati Conservatory, I know, and I mean, Juilliard and whatnot. So they've now gone to using the, the original language for their operas. But at the time when I was there, there was only English. Unfortunately, there was no English diction course, though, that was uh, required. I actually picked up Madeline Marshall's manual on English diction, and I started to understand something a little bit about how you can bring out certain things, and certainly the pronunciation. English isn't always an easy language to sing. Some things are messed up with some of the schwas and whatnot, and it can be a difficult process. But again, knowing the manual and knowing some of the rules has helped quite a bit. Lyric Opera Chicago also helping the Opera Center when I was there. Nell Shannon was quite a pedagogue, is quite a wonderful addiction coach. And I realized that things such as patter in the Bartolo's aria was getting a little bit not understandable because I was trying to bring out everything. And again, that's brought me to that idea of what's the most important thing. If you bring out the nouns within those, some things you can give less emphasis to and then it will be more understandable, even if you mess up some of those smaller words. As long as you get the big ones in, the people will understand what you just sung. The baritone voice is one that is in the speaking range more than uh, others. So you do have the advantage in this bass baritone realm of having your words heard and understood more easily than those who are tenors outside of their speaking range. Try to use that as an asset. Well, now we come to the show tunes section of the program, and the tunes are all from one show. What was your inspiration for including three selections from Kurt Weil and Maxwell Anderson's Lost in the Stars, and what's your relationship to this show? I sang an audition for this role of uh, Stephen Kamala on Broadway. Very early in my career, I sang that audition, and I didn't really understand uh, enough of the arias. Maybe I did two of them. I may have sung all three. I may have sung a little bit of all three. It just wasn't in my brain enough to actually have gotten the role. It was a good experience to be able to sing through it. And then I started to add it to my fundraising concerts that I've done for some opera companies and some orchestras and also some arts organizations. So that became a nice trio to put together. It does connect quite a few things with the thousands of miles. It's two sons I think about. He talks about his son who's so many miles away, but the heart keeps us together, he says. And then this uh, whole thing about the, the trial with oh, Tico, Tico, help me, that uh, his son has committed a crime, killed someone, and, and he's trying to tell him to don't tell the truth, and maybe you'll get off. 
But then he says, and yet if I say again, it shall not profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul. That drives home what the ministry was about for me, that it's important. And then Lost in the Stars uh, is iconic with the people such as Judy Garland and Frank Sinatra singing that. So having met Todd Duncan when I did the Washington competition, it was quite a connection to, to that Lost in the Stars, the guy who debuted the role of Stephen Gamala. Great. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Todd and also listed uh, all three of those songs. Now, we added to this set, uh, regrouped with it, the next selection, because it fits so well with the viol, both musically and dramatically, but it's actually from an opera. It's Louis Gruenberg's The Emperor Jones, and the aria is O Lord Jesus, Hear My Prayer. Can you talk a little bit about that choice, about this opera and that piece? Right. A Russian-born American pianist and who was called a prolific composer it did quite a few things for Hollywood, maybe better known for that, but did compose this opera with the connection with the Eugene O'Neill's play that premiered in 1920. So it was just after that when uh, they put this together and got the rights to do it, but O'Neill didn't want to have anything to do with it. So the composer had to get another person to do the libretto. And so Kathleen Vijapa, who he collaborated with, and then they premiered at the Metropolitan Opera in 1933 with Lawrence Tibbet doing the title role as Brutus Jones in blackface, uh, which would not be done today. I sang it uh, just in the Paul Robeson concert that I did in New York a while back. It also is something that Paul Robeson didn't sing because it's a little higher than his voice. And at the same time, he's actually doing the movie uh, Emperor Jones, so I remember doing it way, way back, maybe not the whole thing, for Kennedy King College in Cleveland for someone who was doing a program dedicated to Robeson at the time, and also for the Emancipation Proclamation concert we did uh, in Los Angeles a while back. The one offensive line, maybe I will mute out a little bit when I'm singing it, uh, but it seems to work well, so I don't think anybody has any problems with it. It's a powerful aria, the spiritual, it's me, oh Lord, it's me standing in a need of prayer is in that. That in itself is a reason to continue to sing it because it does bring home that it's not my brother, it's not my sister, it's me, oh Lord. It's time for me to take responsibility for my actions as opposed to trying to blame others. Henry Fogel, former Chicago Symphony president, in his excellent notes for the album, notes this pretty great irony that Paul Robeson actually did the play but of course, when the Met premiered the opera version in 1933, it was still over two decades before Marian Anderson would break the color line there. And so they had Lawrence Tibbet do it in blackface, which really is something <laughs> we look aghast at today. Now, like the Otico Tico Help Me from the Vile, this piece, I think, really brings out your dramatic skills. So I wanted to ask how you managed to perform it with so much emotion and yet still keep everything musical, and is it harder to work up that emotion in a recording session setting? All right. Yeah, just a quick run back to Lawrence Tibbet because I want to give him some props for his standing up for the Winfield, called the New Negro Art Theater. Ed Winfield himself was a witch doctor in that production, and his troupe was actually dancing, and Tibbet threatened to withdraw from the production if they weren't allowed to be on the Metropolitan Opera stage. So I would give him some credit for that. The blackface wasn't a great thing, but Certainly, he did stand up for people. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, I just out. want to say, I'm, I'm not criticizing Tibbet. It was just those times, right? The right, jazz right. singer, Al Jolson, was 1929. This was done back then, but I think, you know, we look back in horror yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. The, the Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney, they had a movie in Blackface. I don't know. It's, 
yeah, what people would understand at the time, it's, it's different now that they have more sensibilities. Yeah, so we were saying that the Tico Tico, the dramatic elements that are contained within that, similar to what is in the uh, Emperor Jones aria, uh, it, it is quite a, an amazing switchover again, because you think about the Lost in the Stars piece, as I said, that was sung by Frank Sinatra and Judy Garland in such a pop style. You couldn't imagine that happening in this aria of Tico Tico Help Me. It's very powerful. It's very dramatic. Uh, again, that one little phrase that sort of builds up. I love the climactic phrase. And yet, if I say again, it shall not profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul. That And it's set in such an incredible way that tip your hat to Violin uh, Anderson is finding that combination. But it leads up to a whole soliloquy and his anguish at having to go through this process. is It's a drain. It is one of the more difficult things to sing in musical theater. I have tried to find ways to not go too far over the edge in order to keep the voice connected. You have a little bit of a, a safety margin when you're doing things like this, but at the same time, you try to give uh, as much energy and power as you can to make it convincing. Sometimes it's the smoothness of a line with a little bit of uh, juice to it that gives it that extra bit that the Italians, you know, they always say the Italians, you can sing the most ugly things, but you sing them beautifully. Mm. But you have to keep in mind when you're trying to go through such things that are so dramatic. Well, and kudos to you for doing it without having the audience energy to feed off of in this recording session. Yeah, in the sense of having the replay of saying, well, I can do a little bit more. It's a little different than, again, having to do it one time in a performance mode because you only have that chance. You think, oh, geez, maybe I, I made a mistake when I gave too much. But in recording, you do have the ability to say, well, let's try another take with just a little less or a little bit more and, and see what I can come up with. And then you have, obviously, the ear in the booth to know that it's acceptable and it's a good uh, rendition. So that is the uh, added advantage of having a recording session to do it. All right, well, let's hear that now. So this is, in its entirety, Oh Lord Jesus, Hear My Prayer from the Emperor Jones of Louis Grunberg. And once again, we hear bass baritone Mark Stephen Doss with Ken Smith at the piano. Seated the mighty, 
Pastilles all I could grab. Lord, I've done wrong. I know it. I'm sorry. Forgive me, Lord. You just heard the aria, O Lord Jesus, Hear My Prayer, from the Emperor Jones, opera by Louis Gruenberg, from the new album, Welcome to My World, sung by bass baritone Mark Stephen Doss with Ken Smith at the piano, and was a really powerful experience. And so I think this would be a good time to remind people that they can find this album when it's released on July 14 on Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, whatever streaming service you like, Noxos Music Library. But you can also pre-order it, even if it's before July 14, from whether it's the Sadie Records website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org, or Amazon.com, or Archive Music. And of course, when you do order it, it will ship on July 14 if you order before that date, or it will ship on the date you ordered if you order it after that date. So I certainly hope you want to check it all out. Well, we come now to the last section of the program, section of inspirational songs or songs of faith. And it opens with two settings by Thomas A. Dorsey, who was a great figure in Chicago, lived 1899 to 1993. Can you talk, in fact, Mark, Stephen, about what an important figure Thomas A. Dorsey was in Chicago and really to music generally? Yeah, I did uh, some uh, research on his connections to Chicago, and they are quite extensive. I was almost blown away at the firsts and whatnot that he was able to accomplish within uh, the whole Chicago scene. His connections with these two songs, because I have a book that I bought, uh, all of his songs is at 40 Songs of Thomas A. Dorsey, which is quite profound, and I hadn't known any of them. I think I had 
been aware of Take My Hand, Precious Lord. I did it for my Heart and Soul session that, that was only a couple of years ago. I may have listened to Mahalia Jackson a rendition, Peace in the Valley. It was something I had heard. It was an Elvis rendition that's a very well known. I think he did it on the Ed Sullivan show, actually. I thought singing it in the original key would be uh, something that would be poignant. I thought I could possibly get through it. Mm. It reminds me of the sort of the soft singing of Rigoletto, actually, because it hangs in such a higher testatura. But it brings out an interesting part of the voice if it's sung well. This was uh, the better part of my singing in, in that piece in the valley. Well, you actually, I'm glad you mentioned those two artists because uh, these songs have been done many different ways by many different artists. You mentioned Mahalia Jackson and Elvis. How would you describe your approach and why do you take that approach to them? Well, again, I think because I listened to some of the renditions, there's a Stella New Dietrich Fischer Diskal singing the song of the flea and uh, whether I would listen to some of Elvis's rendition of the Peace in the Valley or even Mahalia Jackson, Take My Hand, Precious Lord, I thought, there could be something different I heard in some of the accompaniment and some of the vocal line that said, maybe I could do something else here. Let me try it. I was playing with it. And that way I came up with some interesting flourishes musically. And I thought that's what it should be. I was in a Catholic school uh, and there was the gospel choir and they would come in walking and the side by side clapping and whatnot. And you take the basic songs and give a gospel spin on them. That's what I was feeling. The Peace in the Valley is done more as a ballad, and there's a little bit of a flourish that we did at the end, which reminded me of what Elvis was doing and how people appreciate that, just hearing the sound of the voice. And if you can do a bel canto rendition of that gospel tune, as you say, it's done different ways, and uh, people have a little speed up here and there and a bit of a clapping hands of this, that, and the other. But uh, I thought that was a good way to contrast the two. And you mentioned uh, how prolific Dorsey was. Why did you choose these two songs in particular? I did think of them as the most popular. When I would go through as a Google or whatnot, I found those two listed. I had thought about a, a third song, I'll Tell It Wherever I Go. That's also very nice. It was a little less, I don't want to say interesting, but it certainly is a difference. It's a little bit more like Peace in the Valley. But again, I thought it could do without that for now because I wanted to make it as concise and uh, again, contrasting two pieces is always nice to do that. So that's why we came up with that idea to just do the, the two. And again, the most famous ones that are listed usually when you um, go and check out Thomas A. Dorsey, <laughs> they'll list those two right away. And more generally, what inspired you to have an inspirational section to this album? Well, my time in the seminary, possibly, giving dedications to people who have left us, want to give consolation to those who are left behind, uh, families, certainly that would have been a part of my ministry as a Catholic priest, made me think that that was very important, I walk with God, and the two of them seemingly go hand in hand very nicely. We were talking about the inspiration for those, there's an animated short story with that in the background, there's a man here with his wife. She's passed on, and he goes back, and he's remembering the times they had together. And it's quite riveting. It's such an incredible thing to see a little animated short tale given with this song. And you raise me up. The portion, the second verse, Josh Groban doesn't include in his rendition, which is, there's no life, no life without its hunger. Each restless heart beats so impatiently. When you come and I'm filled with wonder, sometimes I think I feel eternity. Mm. It's such a profound thought. I thought it had to be included. And 
it makes it a little different. Again, a different spin on what we might think is something more familiar with, because Josh Groban has made so many songs very familiar. He's a great singer. I sang it for uh, my mother-in-law's memorial service, as well as uh, my longtime accompanist in Cleveland, Jerry Maddox, uh, who passed away mm. uh, just unexpectedly. So Cleveland has a um, glee club that's over 100 years old. So they're all in attendance because Jerry would play for their sessions. I was pleased to be able to do that. Very nice. Well, just to credit the composers, those last two selections are Nicholas Brodsky's I'll Walk With God and Brendan Graham and Rolf Loveland's You Raise Me Up. The first one, I'll Walk With God, is another example of a song that has been done by singers of many different types, whether it's pop singers ranging from there to Placido Domingo. What approach do you take for your version of this song? I only hear in my ear the Mario Lanza rendition, you know, heard so many times. From that, I just try to see if I can add a little bit of something, which is really difficult to do with Mario Lanza because he had such an innate ability to bring out words and to use the purity of vowels. And so obviously the top notes are just off the charts. So when I'm doing it, I'm trying to think of what other colors I can bring to it. My top notes have been praised, so I try to put those up there without needing to work on that. So I have other things that I can work on. But the words themselves are just so profound. Uh, I walk with God, and uh, again, being in the Catholic seminaries, there's a connection to how you feel about your relationship with God. It hasn't been always easy to end with it because it's a top note of uh, F usually. We we took this up to F sharp. I just transposed it up for Ken to play. Mm. And I was pleased that he was able to do it very quickly and very efficiently because it somehow there's a the tessitura going above a certain part of the passaggio can make it more helpful and uh, easier. <laughs> Strangely enough, people say, oh, you take up a half step and it's easier. But for some reason, it was actually a little easier and clearer for the final note. And as you noted, the last song is particularly associated with singer-songwriter Josh Groban, even though he didn't write it himself. So is there a particular challenge to making a song like that your own? It has a little bit of a lower tessitura to it sometimes. Uh, it does. And it also goes up higher. So it's the, the beauty of having the, probably the bass baritone voice, you can touch sort of sentiments on both sides and give a, a color and warmth to the sound uh, without having to push them through to make them sound operatic. There's not a necessity to do that. You just want to make them feel as natural as possible. Walter Castle would do that in some of his renditions. He he loved the Stephen Foster. You come in and he'd say, drink to me only with thine eyes and I will. It was a, a simple technique that he had. He relayed that very well to you as he was singing that little thing. He just wanted you to do it very naturally. Use your voice and not have to put on an operatic voice in order to do it. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, because very often when opera singers take on more popular repertoire, while they have the, I suppose, advantage of their naturally strong voices, but it's often negated by an inability to sing in an appropriate style. And that's clearly not the case there. So how do you, maybe even despite all of your operatic training, manage to sing a piece like this uh, so naturally and powerfully? Yeah, I tend to listen to the melodies. I tend to listen to the words uh, and see what I can come up with to analyze uh, what the voice needs to do in order to make it natural. I did the same thing recently with another set of songs by William Grant Still, uh, Songs of Separation, which uh, is a jazz sort of style, but uh, similar to making something that's 
seemingly connected to emotions, but making it sound natural. Other technical things that I do, which is to sometimes turn on the metronome to see how fast the vibrato is moving. Ah, well, let's see what the metronome says about your vibrato. And mm. not many singers would want to do that, basically, <laughs> or just breath control. Walter Castle used to talk about the old-time carburetors, where you had the air you had to mix with the gas. And so that little bit of doing like this or doing like that. So he would do the combination of air and gas, basically, to see what the sounds, how different they would be. Yeah. So that gives me the ability to make those transitions and to, to give a little bit of differences in colors, panting and whatnot. I remember he used to do the puppy dog. <laughs> he did a lot of humming that he loved Lawrence Tibbetts' hum, but he had a special way of doing things. And uh, I'll also give credit to Nicola Rossi, who I also studied with at Indiana, who was just a master with uh, Maria Callas, the collaborations between the two of them. He, he was a master actor. So you could see some of the layers that he would put on some of his singing that I uh, was able to take on, feel through some of the, the roles that I was doing in the songs. All right, well, let's hear how that sounds. Uh, here are the last two minutes of You Raise Me Up, in which you sing the song's repeated refrain more and more dramatically before ending quietly like a prayer. So here is the end of Brendan Graham and Rolf Loveland's You Raise Me Up as sung by Mark Stephen Doss, bass baritone with Ken Smith at the piano. You raise me up so I can stand on mountains. You raise me up to walk on stormy seas. I am strong when I am on your shore. heard the last part of the song You Raise Me Up, song Josh Groban made famous, but sung here by bass baritone Mark Stephen Doss with Ken Smith at the piano from their new album on CD Records, Welcome to My World. And now that people have heard selections representing all the different sections of this wide-ranging program, what would you like listeners to take away from hearing the album as a whole when they do? 
With most of my recitals I've given, I always seek to add a wide variety of styles and languages. Be a beautiful mixture, a salad of glowing colors and flavors. The listener can hopefully be very well satisfied with the journey that I've taken them on. I recalled Ralph Cappuccilli, and I was an undergraduate at St. Joe's. He said he was a cousin of Piero Cappuccilli, a distant cousin. He was our head of drama at St. Joe's, and he used to say concerning our theatrical productions that people will leave the performance feeling that they have been transported. So that <laughs> sense of taking someone to another level, to taking the listeners uh, with a CD, hopefully, and uh, having them go through a wonderful world of bel canto singing and wonderful linguistic and dramatic and even spiritual ecstasy, hearing these different combinations of pieces put together. That's great. And of course, this is a career retrospective type album. So I have to ask what it's like for you to make such a career retrospective album when your four-decade-long operatic and concert career is still going strong. There's a great satisfaction in putting together such a project of um, legacy uh, recording, as you were saying. You know, sometimes it, it makes you long for uh, still live performances. I think sometimes you want to hear the live rendition just as a comparison note. When I, I hear a live recording, I'm thinking, eh, it just doesn't measure up. So that's something I, I wanted to make sure they're side by side. As I did before, you do renditions of something and you want them to be maybe slightly different, but not inferior to the other. So this inspires someone to say, well, let me go in here and live. I would like to do that. And this is a stepping stone and a, a, a cornerstone on uh, what I have been able to accomplish vocally throughout my career. Oh, lovely. Well, speaking of hearing you live, I wanted to ask you what's coming up for you later this summer and in the 2023-24 opera and concert season. After I finish here in Rome, Italy, with From the House of the Dead by Janacek, we have our performances, and as a Tuesday is the opening here. I should note we are recording this in the second half of May All right. to give people the perspective. So, yeah, so that would be May 23rd uh, opening in uh, 2023 here in Rome. The next performances will be in uh, St. Mark's Square, Venice, doing Beethoven Ninth uh, with the La Fenice Orchestra. Uh, it's uh, led by Yurei uh, Varchua. I've uh, sung Beethoven Nights with him quite a few times in the last year. That will be streamed live from St. Mark's Square the 8th of July. 2023. Right around the time this album yeah, comes exactly. out. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then I'll have an orchestra recording I'm going to do with the Prague Orchestra, conducted by John Kanan. He's on the staff of the Metropolitan Opera. So that'll be this summer, just about a week after Venice. And then we'll spend a little time in Salzburg, Austria, just sort of working on the upcoming repertoire. There's a wonderful coach there, Carmen Santoro, who I hope to connect with again. I was with her last summer in, in uh, Austria and Salzburg. And then I have a wonderful role of uh, Giorgio Germont that I will be doing with uh, the Welsh National Opera in the uh, UK. Some 15 performances of that throughout um, Wales in uh, the UK. So without a break, then I, I run off to Flemish Opera in, in Belgium, Antwerp and Ghent for uh, multiple performances of Zurga in uh, Bizet's The Pearl Fishers. Looking forward to that. That's a debut role. I've done, obviously, the, the duet <laughs> quite a bit to the Pearl Fishers. But uh, then with a very small breakout, we'll come back to North America and uh, do the uh, Father in Eridice uh, with the Boston uh, Lyric Opera. That's a, a newish opera that was like, commissioned by the Metropolitan Opera that they're going to do in Boston. And we'll be in, uh, ending up in uh, March of uh, 2024. 
with um, finally going back to Yohanan, which is the John the Baptist in Strauss's Salome. I'll do with Houston Symphony. That's again led by uh, Yuri Avanchua, who's uh, the music director at the uh, Houston Symphony. Then also roundabout that takes me to La Monet in Brussels with uh, the time of our singing, which I opened uh, with and created the role of uh, William Daly in 2022. I just did again in St. Gallen, Switzerland. So we'll redo with the original cast in uh, October, uh, I believe, uh, 2024 for the time of our singing mm. by Christopher uh, uh, Ford. Wow, you've got a busy schedule. We always end these classical Chicago podcasts with a question about what makes Chicago special as a musical city. In your case, I'd love for you to talk about the importance of Chicago to your career, both the Belcanto Foundation and the Lyric Center for American Artists, as it was called in the 1980s when you apprenticed there. Of course, now the Ryan Opera Centers. What would you want to say about Chicago's role in your career? Yeah, well, as I was saying a little bit at the beginning of this podcast, the Opera Center's connection with Matthew Epstein and Santa Fe that uh, led me to Lyric Opera Chicago, where actually I was uh, working with uh, Joan Sutherland and Anna Bolena, and uh, Lorfi Mansouri was uh, directing it, who was head of the Canadian Opera Company at that time, but a great director as well. And uh, he invited me there for my first actual singing contract to do a, the bass role of Spada Fucile and Rigoletto. So uh, from that, in uh, Beverly Sills at New York City Opera, which was connected to my trip to part of the George London Prize uh, that counseled me on how to use the money for that, as well as Matthew Epstein. Then the Jonathan Friend was connected with the Metropolitan Opera, cast me on the stage of the Lyric Opera Chicago as a Manoa cover in Samson. That's my first contract. Again, having covered yeah, Harafa and Manoa in the Samson Lyric. Uh, Richard Boldry was the one uh, who had connected me to uh, the Monasteros because he was a coach at Lyric Opera Chicago, but also uh, played for uh, the seminar in uh, Boseto and had played at uh, Monasteros. And so he connected me to them with uh, Martha being the first one that I met, Monastero, and then with uh, Joe Monastero, Salvi, Gina, and Elizabeth, and singing at the restaurant. Uh, so that took me to the Bel Canto competition that I won, and doing the Verdi competition that I won uh, first prize in, uh, which took me to Bergonzi. And from Bergonzi, and also through Beatrice Ferraro, uh, took me to La Scala. Uh, where uh, Luca Targetti was a casting director who took me to other roles at La Scala uh, and to La Fenice, where his partner, uh, casting director, is now the major, the intendant at La Fenice. So it's a round circle. It's a lot of uh, trees that have a lot of branches, but a lot of them did come from Lyric Opera Center, uh, what is now the Ryan Center, and from Lyric Opera Chicago and the Monasteros. As I say, the Monasteros being uh, also part of that three-wheel cog there. Well, I'm so glad you had a chance to talk about uh, your career in this album. Again, the album is Welcome to My World, and it stars bass baritone Mark Stephen Doss, my guest on this podcast, and also pianist Ken Smith. And I just want to thank you for a delightful discussion and a wonderful album. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening.